The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell. Chapter 3. Off for the Seat of War. The Battle of Shiloh, March and April, 1862. On March 25th we left Benton Barracks for the front. We marched through St. Louis and on to the steamboat that day, but from some cause I never knew, the boat did not leave the wharf until about dark the next evening. My company was quartered on the hurricane deck of the boat. Soon after the boat started down the river, an incident befell me that looks somewhat comical now, but at the time it was to me a serious matter, and one that troubled my conscience a good deal. I had piled my knapsack, with the blanket strapped on the outside, and my other stuff at the foot of the gun stack, which included my musket. Suddenly I discovered, to my great consternation, that my blanket was gone. Yes, my lords and gentlemen, some false Scot had deliberately and feloniously appropriated my indispensable equipment for a night's repose, and a long, raw March night was coming on, and the damp and chilly air was rising like a fog from the cold surface of the river, all signs, too, portended a rainy night. The thunder was muttering off in the southwest, intermittent flashes of lightning lit up the sky, and scattering drops of rain were even then beginning to patter on the hurricane deck and ripple the bosom of the stream. What should I do? I must have a blanket, that was certain. But all my life the belief had been instilled into me that stealing was well-nigh the most disgraceful of all crimes and that a thief was a most odious and contemptible wretch. Moreover, one of the Ten Commandments pointedly declared, Thou shalt not steal. But something had to be done, and speedily. At last it occurred to me that, being a soldier, and belonging for the time being to Uncle Sam, I was a species of government property, which it was my duty to protect at all hazards. That settled the question, and conscience and honesty withdrew. Without going into the demoralizing details, suffice to say that I stole a blanket from some hapless victim belonging to another company, and thus safeguarded the health and military efficiency of a chattel of the nation. How the other fellow got along I don't know. I made no impertinent inquiries, and during the daytime indefinitely thereafter kept that blanket in my knapsack carefully concealed from prying eyes but it will be recorded here that this was the only act of downright larceny that I committed during my entire term of service, except the gobbling of a couple of onions, which maybe I'll mention later. Of course, I helped myself many times while on the march, or on picket, to roasting ears, sweet potatoes, apples, and the like, but that came under the head of legitimate foraging, and was sanctioned by the military authorities." The night we left St. Louis, I had my first impressive object lesson showing the difference between the conditions of the commissioned officers and the enlisted men. I had spread my blanket at the base of the little structure called the Texas, on which the pilot house stands. 
All around the bottom of the Texas was a row of small window lights that commanded a view of the interior of the boat's cabin below, and I only had to turn my head and look in and down to see what was passing. The officers were seated in cushioned chairs or sauntering around over the carpeted and brilliantly lighted room while their supper was being prepared. Colored waiters dressed in white uniforms were bringing in the eatables, and when all was ready a gong was sounded and the officers seated themselves at the table. And just look at the good things they had to eat. Fried ham and beefsteak, hot biscuits, butter, molasses, big boiled Irish potatoes steaming hot, fragrant coffee served with cream in cups and saucers, and some minor goodies in the shape of preserves and the like. And how savory those good things smelled, for I was where I could get the benefit of that. And there were the officers in the warm, lighted cabin, seated at a table, with nigger waiters to serve them, feasting on that splendid fare. Why, it was the very incarnation of bodily comfort and enjoyment. And when the officers should be ready to retire for the night, warm and cozy berths awaited them, where they would stretch their limbs on downy quilts and mattresses, utterly oblivious to the wet and chill on the outside. Then I turned my head and took in my surroundings, a black, cold night, cinders and soot drifting on us from the smokestacks, and a drizzling rain pattering down, and my supper had consisted of hardtack and raw sow-belly with river water for a beverage, of the vintage, say, of 1541. And to aggravate the situation generally, I was lying on a blanket which a military necessity had compelled me to steal. But I reflected that we couldn't all be officers. There had to be somebody to do the actual trigger-pulling. And I further consoled myself with the thought that while the officers had more privileges than the common soldiers, they likewise had more responsibilities, and had to worry their brains about many things that didn't bother us a particle. So I smothered all envious feelings as best I could, and wrapping myself up good in my blanket, went to sleep, and all night long slept the unbroken, dreamless sleep of youth and health. The weather cleared up that night, and the next day was fine, and we all felt in better spirits. Our surroundings were new and strange, and we were thrilling with excitement and bright hopes of the future. The great majority of us were simple country boys, who had so far passed our lives in a narrow circle in the backwoods. As for myself, before enlisting in the army, I had never been more than fifty miles from home, had not traveled any on a steamboat, and my few short railroad trips did not amount, in the aggregate, to more than about seventy-five miles back and forth. But now the contracted horizon of the whippoorwill ridges adjacent to the old home had suddenly expanded, and a great big wonderful world was unfolding to my view, and there was the daring heroic life on which we were entering. No individual boy expected that he would be killed, or meet with any other adverse fate. Others might, and doubtless would, but he would come out safe and sound and return home at the end of a victorious war a military hero, and as such would be looked up to and admired and reverenced all the rest of his life. At any rate, such were my thoughts, and I have no doubt whatever that ninety-nine out of a hundred of the other boys thought the same. On the afternoon of this day, March 27th, 
we arrived at Cairo, rounded in at the wharf, and remained a short time. The town fronted on the Ohio River, which was high at the time, as also was the Mississippi. The appearance of Cairo was wretched. Levees had been constructed to protect it from high water, but notwithstanding the streets and the grounds generally were just a foul, stagnant swamp. Engines were at work pumping the surface water into the river through pipes in the levee. Otherwise, I reckon everybody would have been drowned out. Charles Dickens saw this locality in the spring of 1842 when on a visit to America, and it figures in Martin Chuzzlewit, under the name of Eden. I never read that book until after the close of the war, but have several times since, and will say that if the Eden of 1842 looked anything like the Cairo of twenty years later, his description thereof was fully warranted. Our boat had hardly got moored to the wharf before the word went round that some Confederate prisoners were on the transport on our right, and we forthwith rushed to that side to get our first look at the secesh, as we then called them. It was only a small batch, about a hundred or so. They were under guard, and on the after part of the lower deck, along the sides and the stern of the boat. We ascertained that they were about the last installment of the Fort Donelson prisoners, and were being shipped to a northern military prison. Naturally, we scanned them with great curiosity, and the boys soon began to joke and chafe them in a perfectly good-natured way. They took this silently, with no other manifestation than an occasional dry grin. But finally, a rather good-looking young fellow cocked his eyes toward us, and in a soft, drawling tone called out, "'You all will sing a different tune by next summer.' Our boys responded to this with bursts of laughter and some derisive whoops, but later we found out that the young Confederate soldier was a true prophet. Our halt at Cairo was brief. The boat soon cast off and proceeded up the Ohio to the mouth of the Tennessee, and from thence up that river. Sometime the next day we passed Fort Henry. We had read of its capture the month previous by the joint operations of our Army and Navy, and were all curious to see this Confederate stronghold, where a mere handful of men had put up such a plucky fight. My ideas of forts at that time had all been drawn from pictures in books which depicted old-time fortresses, and from descriptions in Scott's Marmion of ancient feudal castles, like Tantalon, Strong, and the like. And when we approached Fort Henry, I fully expected to see some grand, imposing structure with battled towers donjon keep portcullis drawbridges and what not and perhaps some officer of high rank with a drawn sword strutting about on the ramparts and occasionally shouting at the top of his voice what water ho or words to that effect but to my utter amazement and disgust when we steamed up opposite fort henry i saw only a little squatty insignificant-looking mud affair, without the slightest feature of any of the pride, pomp, and circumstance of glorious war. It had been built on the low bottom ground near the bank of the Tennessee River. The stream was now high, and the adjacent land was largely covered with water, while the inside of the fort looked a good deal like a hog pen. 
I couldn't imagine how such a contemptible-looking thing had stood off our gunboats as long as it did. But I did not know then that just such works with earthen walls were the strongest and best defenses against modern artillery that could be constructed. In fact, what I didn't know about war at that stage of the proceedings was broad and comprehensive and covered the whole field. As we journeyed up the Tennessee, we began to notice queer-looking green bunches of something on the trees. As the forest had not yet put forth its foliage, we knew that growth could not be leaves, and were puzzled to imagine what it could be. But we finally learned from some of the boat's crew that it was mistletoe. So far as I knew, none of the private soldiers had ever seen that curious evergreen, and it was to us a strange curiosity. But we got well acquainted with it later. We arrived at Pittsburgh Landing on the evening of March 31st, about sundown. On going into camp in our position upon the line, for the first time in our service we dwelt in tents. We had what was called the Sibley Tent, an affair of a conical shape, rather large and capable of accommodating about twelve men with their accoutrements. As a circumstance bearing on our ignorance of life in tents, I will say that we neglected to ditch around them and on the very first night we slept in them there came a heavy rain, and the next morning found us lying more or less in the water and our blankets and other stuff sopping wet. But after that, on pitching our tents, one of the first things we did was to dig around them a sufficient ditch with a lateral extension. I retain a vivid recollection of the kind of army cooking we had for the first few months in Tennessee. At Camp Carrollton and Benton Barracks, we had company cooks who prepared the food for the entire company. They were merely enlisted men, detailed for that purpose, and while their cooking was nothing to brag about, it was vastly superior to what now ensued. We divided up into messes of four, eight, or twelve men or thereabouts to the mess, and generally would take turns in the culinary line. Very few of us knew anything whatever about cooking, and our exploits in that regard would have been comical if the effects had not been so pernicious. Flour was issued to us after our arrival at Pittsburgh Landing, but we had no utensils in which we could cook biscuits or loaves. So we would make a batter out of flour, water, grease, and salt, and cook it in a mess pan, the product being the army flapjack. It invariably was tough as a mule's ear, about as heavy as lead, and very indigestible. Later we learned to construct ovens of wood, daubed with mud or of stone, and in them, in the course of time, we acquired the knack of baking good bread. But with us in the West, the hardtack was generally our standard bread diet, and nothing could beat it. And for some time our cooking of Yankee beans, as we called them, was simply atrocious. As you know, beans should be cooked until they are thoroughly done otherwise they are decidedly harmful. Well, we would not cook them much more than half enough, the result being a sloppy, slimy mess, its looks alone being well-nigh sufficient to extinguish one's appetite. And as for the rice, the horrible messes we would make of that defy description. I know that one consequence with me was that I contracted such an aversion to rice that for many years afterwards, while in civil life, I just couldn't eat it in any form, 
no matter how temptingly it was prepared. Owing to improperly cooked food, change of climate and of water, and neglect of proper sanitation measures in the camps, camp diarrhea became epidemic at Pittsburgh Landing, especially among the green regiments like ours, and for about six weeks everybody suffered more or less, the difference being only in degree. The fact is, the condition of the troops in that quarter during the prevalence of that disorder was simply so bad and repulsive that any detailed description thereof will be passed over. I never saw the like before, and never have seen it since. I always thought that one thing which aggravated this trouble was the inordinate quantity of sugar some of the men would consume. They would not only use it to excess in their coffee and rice, but would frequently eat it raw by handfuls. I happen to think right now of an incident that illustrates the unnatural appetite of some of the men for sugar. It occurred in camp one rainy day during the siege of Corinth. Jake Hill of my company had covered the top of a big army hardtack with sugar in a cone-like form, piling it on as long as the tack would hold a grain. Then he seated himself on his knapsack and proceeded to gnaw away at his feast by a system of regular approaches. He was even then suffering from the epidemic before mentioned, and so weak he could hardly walk. Someone said to him, "'Jake, that sugar ain't good for you in your condition.' He looked up with an aggrieved air and responded in a tone of cruelly injured innocence. "'Haven't I the right to eat my ration?' Strange to say, Jake got well and served throughout the war. He was a good soldier, too. For my part, I quit using sugar in any form early in my army service, except a little occasionally with stewed fruit or berries, and didn't resume its general use until some years after my discharge from the army. In consequence of the conditions at Pittsburgh Landing that have been alluded to, men died by the score like rotten sheep, and a great many more were discharged for disability and thereby were lost to the service. It is true that some of these discharged men, especially the younger ones, subsequently re-enlisted and made good soldiers, but this loss to the Union armies in Tennessee in the spring of 62 by disease would undoubtedly surpass the casualties of a great battle, but, unlike a battle, there was no resulting compensation whatever. The Battle of Shiloh was fought on April 6th and 7th. In 1890, I wrote an article on the battle which was published in the New York Tribune, and later it appeared in several other newspapers. It has also been reprinted in book form, in connection with papers by other persons, some about the war, and others of a miscellaneous nature. The piece I wrote twenty-five years ago is as good, I reckon, if not better, than anything on that head I can write now, so it will be set out here. In the Ranks at Shiloh by Leander Stilwell, late First Lieutenant, 61st Illinois Volunteer Infantry. There has been a great deal said and written about the Battle of Shiloh, both by rebel and Union officers and writers. On the part of the first there has been, and probably always will be, angry dispute and criticism about the conduct of General Beauregard in calling off his troops Sunday evening 
while fully an hour of broad, precious daylight still remained, which, as claimed by some, might have been utilized in destroying the remainder of Grant's army before Buell could have crossed the Tennessee. On the part of Union writers, the matters most discussed have been as to whether or not our forces were surprised, the condition of Grant's army at the close of the first day, what the result would have been without the aid of the gunboats, or if Buell's army had not come, and kindred subjects. It is not my purpose in telling my story of the Battle of Shiloh to say anything that will add to this volume of discussion. My age at the time was but eighteen, and my position that of a common soldier in the ranks. It would therefore be foolish in me to assume the part of a critic. The generals, who, from reasonably safe points of observation, are sweeping the field with their glasses and noting and directing the movements of the lines of battle, must, in the nature of things, be the ones to furnish the facts that go to make history. The extent of a battlefield seen by the common soldier is that only which comes within the range of the raised sights of his musket, and what little he does see is as through a glass darkly. The dense banks of powder smoke obstruct his gaze. He catches but fitful glimpses of his adversaries as the smoke veers or rises. Then, too, my own experience makes me think that where the common soldier does his duty, all his faculties of mind and body are employed in attending to the details of his own personal part of the work of destruction, and there is but little time left for taking mental notes to form the basis of historical articles a quarter of a century afterward. The handling, tearing, and charging of his cartridge, ramming it home, we used muzzle loaders during the Civil War, the capping of his gun, the aiming and firing, with furious haste and desperate energy, for every shot may be his last. These things require the soldier's close personal attention, and make him oblivious to matters transpiring beyond his immediate neighborhood. Moreover, his sense of hearing is well-nigh overcome by the deafening uproar going on around him. The incessant and terrible crash of musketry, the roar of the cannon, the continual zip-zip of the bullets as they hiss by him, interspersed with the agonizing screams of the wounded or the death shrieks of comrades falling in dying convulsions right in the face of the living, these things are not conducive to that serene and judicial mental equipoise which the historian enjoys in his closet. Let the generals and historians, therefore, write of the movements of corps, divisions, and brigades. I have not to tell but the simple story of what one private soldier saw of one of the bloodiest battles of the war. The regiment to which I belonged was the 61st Illinois Infantry. It left its camp of instruction, a country town in southern Illinois, about the last of February, 1862. We were sent to Benton Barracks near St. Louis and remained there drilling, when the weather would permit, until March 25th. We left on that day for the front. It was a cloudy, drizzly, and most gloomy day as we marched through the streets of St. Louis down to the levee to embark on a transport that was to take us to our destination. The city was enveloped in that pall of coal smoke for which St. Louis is celebrated. It hung heavy and low and set us all to coughing. I think the colonel must have marched us down some by-street. It was narrow and dirty, with high buildings on either side. The line officers took the sidewalks, while the regiment, marching by the flank, 
tramped in silence down the middle of the street, slumping through the nasty, slimy mud. There was one thing very noticeable on this march through St. Louis, and that was the utter lack of interest taken in us by the inhabitants. From pictures I have seen in books at home, my idea was that when soldiers departed for war, beautiful ladies stood on balconies and waved snowy white handkerchiefs at the troops, while the men stood on the sidewalks and corners and swung their hats and cheered. There may have been regiments so favored, but ours was not one of them. Occasionally a fat, chunky-looking fellow of a German cast of countenance with a big pipe in his mouth would stick his head out of a door or window, look at us a few seconds, and then disappear. No handkerchiefs nor hats were waved. We heard no cheers. My thoughts at the time were that the Union people there had all gone to war, or else the colonel was marching us through a secesh part of town. We marched to the levee, and from there on board the big side-wheel steamer Empress. The next evening she unfastened her moorings, swung her head out into the river, turned downstream, and we were off for the seat of war. We arrived at Pittsburgh Landing on March 31st. Pittsburgh Landing, as its name indicates, was simply a landing place for steamboats. It is on the west bank of the Tennessee River, in a thickly wooded region about twenty miles northeast of Corinth. There was no town there then, nothing but the log house on the hill that the survivors of the Battle of Shiloh will all remember. The banks of the Tennessee on the Pittsburgh Landing side are steep and bluffy, rising about one hundred feet above the level of the river. Shiloh Church, that gave the battle its name, was a Methodist meeting house. It was a small, hewed log building with a clapboard roof, about two miles out from the landing on the main Corinth Road. On our arrival, we were assigned to the division of General B. M. Prentice, and we at once marched out and went into camp. About half a mile from the landing, the road forks. The main Corinth Road goes to the right, past Shiloh Church. The other goes to the left. These two roads come together again some miles out. General Prentice's division was camped on this left-hand road at right angles to it. Our regiment went into camp almost on the extreme left of Prentice's line. There was a brigade of Sherman's division under General Stewart still further to the left, about a mile, I think, in camp near a ford of Lick Creek, where the Hamburg and Purdy Road crosses the creek, and between the left of Prentice's and General Stewart's camp there were no troops. I know that, for during the few days intervening between our arrival and the battle, I roamed all through those woods on our left between us and Stewart, hunting for wild onions and turkey peas. The camp of our regiment was about two miles from the landing. The tents were pitched in the woods, and there was a little field of about twenty acres in our front. The camp faced nearly west, or possibly southwest. I shall never forget how glad I was to get off that old steamboat and to be on solid ground once more, in camp, out in those old woods. My company had made the trip from St. Louis to Pittsburgh Landing on the hurricane deck of the steamboat, and our fare on the route had been hardtack and raw fat meat washed down with river water, as we had no chance to cook anything, and we had not then learned the trick of catching the surplus hot water ejected from the boilers and making coffee with it. But once on solid ground, with plenty of wood to make fires, that bill of fare was changed. I shall never again eat meat that will taste as good as the fried 
Sowbelly did then, accompanied by flapjacks and plenty of good, strong coffee. We had not yet got settled down to the regular drills. Guard duty was light, and things generally seemed to run kind of loose. And then the climate was delightful. We had just left the bleak, frozen north, where all was cold and cheerless, and we found ourselves in a clime where the air was as soft and warm as it was in Illinois in the latter part of May. The green grass was springing from the ground, the johnny jump-ups were in blossom, the trees were bursting into leaf, and the woods were full of feathered songsters. There was a redbird that would come every morning about sun-up and perch himself in the tall black oak tree in our company street, and for perhaps an hour he would practice on his impatient, querulous note that said, as plain as a bird could say, Boys, boys, get up, get up, get up. It became a standing remark among the boys that he was a Union redbird and had enlisted in our regiment to sound the reveille. So the time passed pleasantly away until that eventful Sunday morning, April 6th, 1862. According to the Tribune Almanac for that year, the sun rose that morning in Tennessee at 38 minutes past 5 o'clock. I had no watch, but I have always been of the opinion that the sun was fully an hour and a half high before the fighting began on our part of the line. We had turned out about sunup, answered to roll call, and had cooked and eaten our breakfast. We had then gone to work preparing for the regular Sunday morning inspection, which would take place at nine o'clock. The boys were scattered around the company streets and in front of the company parade grounds, engaged in polishing and brightening their muskets, and brushing up and cleaning their shoes, jackets, trousers, and clothing generally. It was a most beautiful morning. The sun was shining brightly through the trees, and there was not a cloud in the sky. It really seemed like Sunday in the country at home. During weekdays there was a continual stream of army wagons going to and from the landing, and clucking of their wheels, the yells and oaths of the drivers, the cracking of whips mingled with the brain of mules, the neighing of the horses, the commands of the officers engaged in drilling the men, the incessant hum and buzz of the camps, the blare of bugles and the roll of drums, all these made up a prodigious volume of sound that lasted from the coming up to the going down of the sun. But this morning was strangely still. The wagons were silent, the mules were peacefully munching their hay, and the army teamsters were giving us a rest. I listened with delight to the plaintive, mournful tones of a turtle-dove in the woods close by, while on the dead limb of a tall tree right in the camp a woodpecker was sounding his long roll, just as I had heard it beaten by his northern brothers a thousand times on the trees in the Otter Creek bottom at home. Suddenly, away off on the right, in the direction of Shiloh Church, came a dull, heavy pum, then another, and still another. Every man sprung to his feet, as if struck by an electric shock, and we looked inquiringly into one another's faces. What is that? asked everyone, but no one answered. Those heavy booms then came thicker and faster, and just a few seconds after we heard that first dull, ominous growl off to the southwest, came a low, sullen, continuous roar. There was no mistaking that sound. That was not a squad of pickets emptying their guns on being relieved from duty. 
it was the continuous roll of thousands of muskets, and told us that a battle was on. What I have been describing just now occurred during a few seconds only, and with the roar of musketry the long roll began to beat in our camp. Then ensued a scene of desperate haste, the like of which I certainly had never seen before, nor ever saw again. I remember that in the midst of this terrible uproar and confusion, while the boys were buckling on their cartridge boxes, and before even the companies had been formed, a mounted staff officer came galloping wildly down the line from the right. He checked and whirled his horse sharply around, right in our company street, the iron-bound hoofs of his steed crashing among the tin plates lying in a little pile where my mess had eaten its breakfast that morning. The horse was flecked with foam, and its eyes and nostrils were red as blood. The officer cast one hurried glance around him and exclaimed, "'My God! This regiment not in line yet! They have been fighting on the right over an hour!' And wheeling his horse, he disappeared in the direction of the colonel's tent. I know now that history says the battle began about 4.30 that morning, that it was brought on by a reconnoitering party sent out early that morning by General Prentiss, that General Sherman's division on the right was early advised of the approach of the rebel army, and got ready to meet them in ample time. I have read these things in books, and am not disputing them, but am simply telling the story of an enlisted man on the left of Prentiss's line as to what he saw and knew of the condition of things at about seven o'clock that morning. Well, the companies were formed. We marched out on the regimental parade ground, and the regiment was formed in line. The command was given, Load at will, load. We had anticipated this, however, as the most of us had instinctively loaded our guns before we had formed company. All this time the roar on the right was getting nearer and louder. Our old colonel rode up close to us, opposite the center of the regimental line, and called out, attention battalion we fixed our eyes on him to hear what was coming it turned out to be the old man's battle harangue gentlemen he said in a voice that every man in the regiment heard remember your state and do your duty today like brave men that was all a year later in the war the old man doubtless would have addressed us as soldiers and not as gentlemen and he would have omitted his allusion to the state, which smacked a little of Confederate notions. However, he was a Douglas Democrat, and his mind was probably running on Buena Vista in the Mexican War, where, it is said, a Western regiment acted badly and threw a cloud over the reputation for courage of the men of that state, which required the thunders of the Civil War to disperse. Immediately after the colonel had given us his brief exhortation, the regiment was marched across the little field I have before mentioned, and we took our place in line of battle, the woods in front of us and the open field in our rear. We dressed on the colors, ordered arms, and stood awaiting the attack. By this time the roar on the right had become terrific. The rebel army was unfolding its front, and the battle was steadily advancing in our direction. We could begin to see the blue rings of smoke curling upward among the trees off to the right, and the pungent smell of burning gunpowder filled the air. As the roar came traveling down the line from the right, it reminded me, 
only it was a million times louder, of the sweep of a thunder shower in summertime over the hard ground of a stubble field. And there we stood, on the edge of the woods, so still, waiting for the storm to break on us. I know mighty well what I was thinking about then. My mind's eye was fixed on a little log cabin far away to the north, in the backwoods of western Illinois. I could see my father sitting on the porch, reading the little local newspaper brought from the post office the evening before. There was my mother getting my little brothers ready for Sunday school, the old dog lying asleep in the sun, the hens cackling about the barn. All these things and a hundred other tender recollections rushed into my mind. I am not ashamed to say now that I would willingly have given a general quitclaim deed for every jot and title of military glory falling to me, past, present, and to come, if I only could have been miraculously and instantaneously set down in the yard of that peaceful little home, a thousand miles away from the haunts of fighting men. The time we thus stood, waiting the attack, could not have exceeded five minutes. Suddenly, obliquely to our right, there was a long, wavy flash of bright light, then another and another. It was the sunlight shining on gun barrels and bayonets. And there they were at last, a long brown line with muskets at a right shoulder shift, in excellent order. Right through the woods they came. We began firing at once. From one end of the regiment to the other leaped a sheet of red flame, and the roar that went up from the edge of that old field doubtless advised General Prentice of the fact that the rebels had at last struck the extreme left of his line. We had fired but two or three rounds when, for some reason, I never knew what, we were ordered to fall back across the field and did so. The whole line, so far as I could see to the right, went back. We halted on the other side of the field, in the edge of the woods, in front of our tents, and again began firing. The rebels, of course, had moved up and occupied the line we had just abandoned, and here we did our first hard fighting during the day. Our officers said, after the battle was over, that we held this line an hour and ten minutes. How long it was, I do not know. I took no note of time. We retreated from this position, as our officers afterwards said, because the troops on our right had given way, and we were flanked. Possibly those boys on our right would give the same excuse for their leaving, and probably truly too. Still, I think we did not fall back a minute too soon. As I rose from the comfortable log from behind which a bunch of us had been firing, I saw men in gray and brown clothes, with trailed muskets, running through the camp on our right, and I saw something else, too, that sent a chill all through me. It was a kind of flag I had never seen before. It was a gaudy sort of thing, with red bars. It flashed over me in a second that that thing was a rebel flag. It was not more than sixty yards to the right. The smoke around it was low and dense, and kept me from seeing the man who was carrying it, but I plainly saw the banner. It was going fast with a jerky motion, which told me that the bearer was on a double quick. About that time we left. We observed no kind of order in leaving. The main thing was to get out of there as quick as we could. I ran down our company street, and in passing the big Sibley tent of our mess, 
I thought of my knapsack, with all my traps and belongings, including that precious little packet of letters from home. I said to myself, I will save my knapsack anyhow. But one quick backward glance over my left shoulder made me change my mind, and I went on. I never saw my knapsack or any of its contents afterwards. Our broken forces halted and reformed about a half a mile to the rear of our camp on the summit of a gentle ridge, covered with thick brush. I recognized our regiment by the little gray pony the old colonel rode, and hurried to my place in the ranks. Standing there with our faces once more to the front, I saw a seemingly endless column of men in blue, marching by the flank, who were filing off to the right through the woods, and I heard our old German adjutant, Kramer, say to the colonel, "'Those are the troops of General Hurlbut. He is forming a new line, Darren de Bush.' I exclaimed to myself from the bottom of my heart, "'Bully for General Hurlbut and the new line in the bush. Maybe we'll whip em yet.' I shall never forget my feelings about this time." I was astonished at our first retreat in the morning across the field back to our camp, but it occurred to me that maybe that was only strategy and all done on purpose. But when we had to give up our camp and actually turn our backs and run half a mile, it seemed to me that we were forever disgraced, and I kept thinking to myself, what will they say about this at home? I was very dry for a drink and as we were doing nothing just then, I slipped out of ranks and ran down to the little hollow in our rear in search of water. Finding a little pool, I threw myself on the ground and took a copious draught. As I rose to my feet, I observed an officer about a rod above me, also quenching his thirst, holding his horse meanwhile by the bridle. As he rose, I saw it was our old adjutant. At no other time would I have dared accost him, unless in the line of duty, but the situation made me bold. Adjutant, I said, what does this mean? Our having to run this way, ain't we whipped? He blew the water from his mustache, and quickly answered in a careless way, Oh, no, that is all right. We used to fall back to form on the reserve. General Buell was now crossing the river, met fifty thousand men, and will be here pretty quick and General Lou Wallace is coming from Crump's Landing mit 15,000 more. Ve vipsum, ve vipsum, go to your company. Back I went on the run, with a heart as light as a feather. As I took my place in the ranks beside my chum, Jack Medford, I said to him, Jack, I've just had a talk with the old adjutant down at the branch where I've been to get a drink. He says Buell is crossing the river with 75,000 men and a whole world of cannon, and that some other general is coming up from Crump's Landing with 25,000 more men. He says we fell back here on purpose, and that we're going to whip the secesh just sure. Ain't that just perfectly bully? I had improved some on the adjutant's figures, as the news was so glorious, I thought a little variance of 25,000 or 30,000 men would make no difference in the end. But as the long hours were on that day, and still Buell and Wallace did not come, my faith in the adjutant's veracity became considerably shaken. It was at this point that my regiment was detached from Prentice's division, and served with it no more that day. We were sent some distance to the right to support a battery, the name of which I never learned. It was occupying the summit of a slope, 
and was actively engaged when we reached it. We were put in position about twenty rods in the rear of the battery and ordered to lie flat on the ground. The ground sloped gently down in our direction, so that by hugging it close the rebel shot and shell went over us. It was here at about ten o'clock in the morning that I first saw Grant that day. He was on horseback, of course, accompanied by his staff, and was evidently making a personal examination of his lines. He went by us in a gallop, riding between us and the battery at the head of his staff. The battery was then hotly engaged, shot and shell were whizzing overhead and cutting off the limbs of trees, but Grant rode through the storm with perfect indifference, seemingly paying no more attention to the missiles than if they had been paper wads. We remained in support of this battery until about two o'clock in the afternoon. We were then put in motion by the right flank, filed to the left, crossed the left-hand Corinth Road, then we were thrown into the line by the command by the left flank march. We crossed a little ravine and up a slope, and relieved a regiment on the left of Hurlbut's line. This line was desperately engaged, and had been at this point, as we afterward learned, for fully four hours. I remember as we went up the slope and began firing, about the first thing that met my gaze was what out west we would call a windrow of dead men in blue, some doubled up face downward, others with their white faces upturned to the sky, brave boys who had been shot to death in holding the line. Here we stayed until our last cartridge was shot away. We were then relieved by another regiment, we filled our cartridge boxes again and went back to the support of our battery. The boys laid down and talked in low tones. Many of our comrades, alive and well an hour ago, we had left dead on that bloody ridge. And still the battle raged. From right to left, everywhere, it was one never-ending, terrible roar with no prospect of stopping. Somewhere between four and five o'clock, as near as I can tell, everything became ominously quiet. Our batteries ceased firing. The gunners leaned against the pieces and talked and laughed. Suddenly a staff officer rode up and said something in a low tone to the commander of the battery, then rode to our colonel and said something to him. The battery horses were at once brought up from a ravine in the rear, and the battery limbered up and moved off through the woods diagonally to the left and rear. We were put in motion by the flank and followed it. Everything kept so still, the loudest noise I heard was the clucking of the wheels of the gun carriages and caissons as they wound through the woods. We emerged from the woods and entered a little old field. I then saw to our right and front lines of men in blue moving in the same direction we were, and it was evident that we were falling back. All at once, on the right, the left, and from our recent front came one tremendous roar, and the bullets fell like hail. The lines took the double-quick towards the rear. For a while the attempt was made to fall back in order, and then everything went to pieces. My heart failed me utterly. I thought the day was lost. A confused mass of men and guns caissons, army wagons, ambulances, and all the debris of a beaten army surged and crowded along the narrow dirt road to the landing, while that pitiless storm of leaden hail came crashing on us from the rear. 
it was undoubtedly at this crisis in our affairs that the division of General Prentice was captured. I will digress here for a minute to speak of a little incident connected with this disastrous feature of the day that has always impressed me as a pathetic instance of the patriotism and unselfish devotion to the cause that was by no means uncommon among the rank and file of the Union armies. There was in my company a middle-aged German named Charles Oberdyke. According to the company descriptive book, he was a native of the then Kingdom of Hanover, now a province of Prussia. He was a typical German, flaxen-haired, blue-eyed, quiet and taciturn, of limited and meager education, but a model soldier, who accepted without question and obeyed without a murmur the orders of his military superiors. Prior to the war he had made his living by chopping cordwood in the high timbered hills near the mouth of the Illinois River, or by working as a common laborer in the country on the farms at fourteen dollars a month. He was unmarried, his parents were dead, and he had no other immediate relatives surviving, either in his fatherland or in the country of his adoption. He and I enlisted from the same neighborhood. I had known him in civil life at home, and hence he was disposed to be more communicative with me than with the other boys in the company. A day or two after the battle, he and I were sitting in the shade of a tree in camp talking over the incidents of the fight. Charlie, I said to him, how did you feel along about four o'clock Sunday afternoon when they broke our lines? We were falling back in disorder, and it looked like the whole business was gone up generally. He knocked the ashes from his pipe and, turning his face quickly towards me, said, I used to tell you how I feels. I no care anythings about Charlie. He have no wife, no children, father, no mother, brother, no sister. If Charlie get killed, it make no difference. There was nobody to cry for him. So I dinks nothing about myself. But I tells you, I used then feels bad for de cause. Noble, simple-hearted old Charlie. It was the imminent danger only to the cause that made his heart sink in that seemingly fateful hour. When we heard in the malignant and triumphant roar of the rebel cannon in our rear what might be the death knell of the last great experiment of civilized men, to establish among the nations of the world a united republic, freed from the curse of pampered kings and selfish, grasping aristocrats, it was in that moment, in his simple language, that the peril to the cause was the supreme and only consideration. It must have been when we were less than half a mile from the landing on our disorderly retreat before mentioned, that we saw standing in line of battle at ordered arms extending from both sides of the road until lost in sight in the woods a long well-ordered line of men in blue what did that mean and where had they come from i was walking by the side of enoch wallace the orderly sergeant of my company he was a man of nerve and courage and by word and deed had done more that day to hold us green and untried boys in ranks and firmly to our duty than any other man in the company. But even he, in the face of this seemingly appalling state of things, had evidently lost heart. I said to him, Enoch, what are those men there for? He answered in a low tone, 
I guess they are put there to hold the rebels in check till the army can get across the river. And doubtless that was the thought of every intelligent soldier in our beaten column. And yet it goes to show how little the common soldier knew of the actual situation. We did not know then that this line was the last line of battle of the fighting 4th Division under General Hurlbut, that on its right was the division of McClellan, the Fort Donelson boys, that on its right, at right angles to it, and, as it were, the refused wing of the army, was glorious old Sherman hanging on with a bulldog grip to the road across Snake Creek from Crump's Landing, by which Lew Wallace was coming with 5,000 men. In other words, we still had an unbroken line confronting the enemy, made up of men who were not yet ready by any manner of means to give up that they were whipped. Nor did we know then that our retreating mass consisted only of some regiments of Hurlbut's division and some other isolated commands, who had not been duly notified of the recession of Hurlbut and of his falling back to form a new line, and thereby came very near sharing the fate of Prentice's men and being marched to the rear as prisoners of war. Speaking for myself, it was twenty years after the battle before I found these things out. Yet they are true, just as much so as the fact that the sun rose yesterday morning. Well, we filed through Hurlbut's line, halted, reformed, and faced to the front once more. We were put in place a short distance in the rear of Hurlbut as a support to some heavy guns. It must have been about five o'clock now. Suddenly, on the extreme left and just a little above the landing, came a deafening explosion that fairly shook the ground beneath our feet, followed by others in quick and regular succession. The look of wonder and inquiry that the soldiers' faces wore for a moment disappeared for one of joy and exultation as it flashed across our minds that the gunboats had at last joined hands in the dance and were pitching big twenty-pound parrot shells up the ravine in front of Hurlbut to the terror and discomfiture of our adversaries. The last place my regiment assumed was close to the road coming up from the landing. As we were lying there, I heard the strains of martial music and saw a body of men marching by the flank up the road. I slipped out of ranks and walked out to the side of the road to see what troops they were. Their band was playing Dixie's Land, and playing it well. The men were marching at a quick step, carrying their guns, cartridge boxes, haversacks, canteens, and blanket rolls. I saw that they had not been in the fight, for there was no powder smoke on their faces. What regiment is this? I asked of a young sergeant marching on the flank. Back came the answer in a quick, cheery tone. The 36th Indiana, the advance guard of Buell's army. I did not, on hearing this, throw my cap into the air and yell. That would have given those Indiana fellows a chance to chafe and guy me, and possibly make sarcastic remarks, which I did not care to provoke. I gave one big, gasping swallow, and stood still, but the blood thumped in the veins of my throat, and my heart fairly pounded against my little infantry jacket in the joyous rapture of this glorious intelligence. Soldiers need not be told of the thrill of unspeakable exultation they all have felt at the sight of armed friends in danger's darkest hour. Speaking for myself alone, I can only say, in the most heartfelt sincerity, that in all my obscure military career, never to me was the sight of reinforcing legions so precious and so welcome 
as on that Sunday evening when the rays of the descending sun were flashed back from the bayonets of Buell's advance column as it deployed on the bluffs of Pittsburgh Landing. My account of the battle is about done. So far as I saw or heard, very little fighting was done that evening after Buell's advance crossed the river. The sun must have been fully an hour high when anything like regular and continuous firing had entirely ceased. What the result would have been if Beauregard had massed his troops on our left and forced the fighting late Sunday evening would be a matter of opinion, and a common soldier's opinion would not be considered worth much. My regiment was held in reserve the next day and was not engaged. I have, therefore, no personal experience of that day to relate. After the Battle of Shiloh, it fell to my lot to play my humble part in several other fierce conflicts of arms. But Shiloh was my maiden fight. It was there I first saw a gun fired in anger, heard the whistle of a bullet, or saw a man die a violent death. And my experiences, thoughts, impressions, and sensations on that bloody Sunday will abide with me as long as I live. End of chapter 3